Good morning, church. My name is Cindy Swa. Um, I think the intro is I grew up right here in the Western Cape, born and bred in Langa. I think it's the oldest township in the Western Cape. My home language is Isikosa, and I've been attending Common Ground Bloberg for about a year and a half now. This morning's reading is from Act 6. It is from verse 1 up to verse 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick, up, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And, when they, and what they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That is the word of God. Good morning, everybody. It's such a pleasure to be here. I want to thank the uh, eldership team for this opportunity to come and open up God's Word. And uh, I was here a couple of months ago giving you an update on Sekunya, and it's, a, it's really wonderful to f- see some familiar faces from just a couple of months ago. It feels, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to go to another church and feel so warmly welcomed in by God's people. So I have the wonderful task in a short amount of time of condensing uh, the topic of justice and the church and the justice and our response as individuals. And so um, Roger said I could preach for as long as it takes him to run next week's Cape Town Marathon. It's about right, hey? 45 minutes, that's all I've got. Okay. So I want you to picture, we're in the series of Acts, I want you to picture the gathering of believers and they distributing food daily to widows in their community. I just want you to picture that for a moment. You can easily gloss over in a narrative. We're trying to get the main points out of it, and I'm going to pull out some, perhaps some peculiar uh, points from this text. But uh, what we're seeing in Acts chapter 6 is, is an echo of what was happening in Acts chapter 4, when it was telling us that the church was operating in a way that there was no needy among the believers in the church. So this is, in many ways, carrying on with that conversation, saying, hey, this is, this is what's going on. But why were those early Christians... Uh, in the church, feeding widows in their community? What was going on there? Why were they doing that? And it's a curious question to ask because the easy answer is, well, well, that's a good thing to do, right? To to serve those people that are particularly vulnerable. But I want to, before I go into deeper into Act 6, I want to go into a bit of the, the biblical motivation that these believers had to stir them into action to serving that particular segment of their community and their church. You see, these believers were steeped in the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And they were very familiar with the text that described God in the Old Testament as a God who is merciful, who is rich in mercy and compassion. And they knew that believers in this God were to reflect that compassion, to reflect that mercy. And so all across the laws in the Old Testament, we see God instructing his people how to live just lives 
We also see laws that are put in place to reduce the impact of injustice, to not let injustice go from one generation to another. And if you're familiar with the the writings of the prophets, there are many times that the prophets are speaking up against God's people who are not living up to the standard of mercy and compassion and justice that God had put out for his people. And so to give an example, I'll just pick on one which references this particular group of people that the, the early church was serving. In Zechariah chapter 7, uh, we read here, and it says, And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. So this early church, they would have been able to recite this likely. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor, and do not plot evil against each other. Now, this version of this kind of instruction to God's people comes up in many, many different ways. But you see there's, there's four major verbs or instructions that come out here. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion, do not oppress, and do not plot evil. You see those instructions. All of God's people, this is something that we need to be holding on to as the people of God. But they also mention, Zechariah mentions four groups of people, and one of which pops up in, the, in, the, in Act 6. The four of the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor. And you're kind of like, why those four groups of people? And if we look at the context in the Old Testament, this, these, these four people, four groups of people, were the most vulnerable at the time. They were the most likely to be oppressed, to be plotted against, to have evil done against them, to be taken advantage of. And in that society, again, we, we, we don't have time to go into why in that time that was so particularly tricky. But I, I encourage you to pause now and, and reflect on in Bloberg and in Cape Town and in South Africa, who are those people that are most vulnerable? Who are the people most likely to be taken advantage of, to be oppressed, to have evil plotted against them? Now, the people that you have in mind might be a particular group or a class of people or people living in a particular community or those struggling within a particular context or with an issue, right? And it doesn't take us long to think about those people in our day and our time that are being taken advantage of, that are on the margins of society, that Zechariah or God through Zechariah would say to us with those people in mind, administer true justice, Show mercy and compassion. Do not oppress and do not plot evil against them. I'm going to zip back into uh, the New Testament, back to Acts chapter 6. And the first point we're going to take out from this, having learned from Zechariah, is that compassion, mercy, and justice are markers of true Christian faith. Let me say that again. Compassion, mercy, and justice are markers of true Christian faith. Because it's very easy for us to look at a group of people doing good, feeding widows, and saying that's a good thing. But when we look back at the Old Testament, all the time leading up to it, we're saying this isn't just a good thing, this is a God thing. There's something of a biblical motivation that the God who has concern and compassion for the vulnerable, that's the God that Christians serve. And in so many different ways, Christians are putting hands and feet onto the compassion and the concern that God has for people. That we're demonstrating his heart to a world that is in need. And I'm going to come back to this, but I want to mention it here, that this is empowered by the gospel. 
that this concern, this compassion, this pursuit of justice is fueled by the good news. <laughs> it's put this way, in many ways, a, a true experience of the grace of Jesus Christ inevitably motivates a man or woman to seek justice in the world. Let me say that again. A true experience of the grace of Jesus Christ inevitably motivates a man or woman to seek justice in the world. I've heard it said that it's our, our view of justice and mercy and our concern for others is almost like a thermometer of how well we understand the gospel. If we have no concern for those who are vulnerable and poor, we have a low temperature. We, we don't have a true understanding of the gospel. And if we're spending our lives in the purpose of seeing others flourish, that's something of a marker of saying we've got the gospel inside of us. And this is why uh, one of the, the tricky verses that we, you know, when you, when you try to take a pair of scissors to your Bible, you try and cut it out, right? 1 John 3 verse 17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity in them, it's pity on them, excuse me, how can the love of God be in that person? And that John's saying, like, if, you, if you've been captivated by Jesus Christ, you will spend your life in service of others. And if you don't, there's something going on here that the love of God hasn't sunk deep enough into your heart and into your soul. Tim Keller puts it this way. He's saying, if you don't love the poor or have concern for them, then you don't have the relationship with God that you think you do. Okay. Oof. How much longer do I have? Okay, this is, this is when, the, when the room changes temperature, right? Because it, it holds up a mirror to our hearts and go, whoa, what's going on inside of me that I don't want to pursue justice or spend myself on others, but we're going to come back to that. So we, we've, we've covered in many ways the why of the apostles and the disciples feeding the widows in their, in their congregation, in, in their church. But let's look at what is happening in this passage. We see, first of all, that there's incredible diversity in this church. If you're not familiar, the, the Hellenists that were described, you're welcome to put the text back up there. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews who were living outside of Palestine. In this text, the Hebrews were the, the Palestinian Jews who spoke Aramaic, and these guys were being saved and coming into the church, and there was this friction between these two groups. And we can go into historical context why there might have been some, some history of why there was tension there. But the, the key issue that we see here is that there was unequal distribution of food. And so verse 1 tells of, of, of a complaint arising. There was a problem in the early church. And I don't want to rush over this. You know, when we, as I say, when we read this thing, just... Let's get on to the, the meat of the passage. What we see, first of all, is that the apostles needed a complaint to reveal a blind spot that they had. We didn't say the Spirit revealed it to them. They said their complaint arose in the congregation, right? It had to be brought to the leader's attention. And so my second point, as I say, a curious point to pull out of this, is becoming more just and merciful is a journey. Becoming more just and merciful is a journey. We see the early church doing good, right? They're spending themselves blessing other people. And at the same time, they had some more maturing to do. They were doing good things, but they weren't perfect. God still wanted to refine their hearts and grow their witness and mission to the world. And beautifully, when the complaint arose, we see them paying attention, listening and learning and bringing it before God. And so one of the things that I think that we, we have uh, a challenge with when it comes to the topic of justice is we might treat it like something outside of other areas of discipleship. 
for those who have been following Jesus for a while, you recognize that actually it can take a while to grow more and more Christ-like in different areas of your life, whether it's parenthood or connecting your faith to what does it mean to be at work and how do I serve others and so on, that God doesn't refine our character in one day. There's this journey of growing more and more like Jesus. And it's the same with this topic of justice and mercy and compassion. And I think one of the challenges that we have with this particular topic is we've had experiences of people who are passionate about a particular justice issue. And they're almost militant about it. They're so passionate about it that whenever you hear them talking about it, you, you can walk away feeling shamed or guilty or overwhelmed or judged. And so we, we just don't, we're like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to lean into that particular topic. And I'm fairly certain that you've met someone in person or on social media that are single-issue Christians who kind of boil down Christianity to a particular justice topic and saying, if you don't do justice in this way or act like this or join this campaign or support this social media thing or if you don't do this and this and this and this, then you're part of the problem. Have you ever experienced any? I don't see any nods. Is that just me? Okay, thanks. Thanks for the nods, even if they were uh, sympathy nods. But, um, but many times with the topic of justice, you can end up feeling like you're either out or in. You're either part of the bad people or you're part of the good people. And it's this very binary thing. And we're going, actually, in reality, it's a journey. And it's not a journey of one step. And so I feel uh, empathy for, for people who've been trying to grapple. Like, what does it mean for this issue that's come up? How do I connect my faith to it? And when they try to find out, they can't find another step to take. And they feel immobilized going, I know it's an issue, but I don't know what to do. And they're feeling stuck. And I hope today that as we explore this topic that you're feeling invited and not obliged, that you're feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit, not condemned, that you hear the heart of God, the God of justice, and feel drawn to Him, not a campaign, not a person, not a message, but you feel drawn to Jesus, who's at the center of all justice and compassion, and that in engaging with Him, you identify what you can do next. Not because someone with a microphone said you should do it, but because God calls you into relationship with him and pursue his justice. Now, growing in our fellowship of Jesus includes, I use this language, of connecting your faith to issues of justice. That when a complaint arises, to go to God, to go to scripture, to go and pray and ask God, how does my faith in you inform the way I respond to this complaint? Just to use the word complaint from, from Act 6. And complaint may come, you may read something on social media, you may hear someone on TV or on, on some kind of news interview, and you're going, oh, you have a conversation with someone, you observe something, you hear a story, you read a book. God uses many different things to raise complaints into our awareness. And to go to God with that and saying, how does being a follower of Jesus shape the way that I respond? And if we're honest, when those complaints come, we might be in a couple of different camps or positions or uh, yeah, positions to it. We, we may be the perpetrator of the injustice. And a complaint comes and someone says, you've done something wrong here. You're doing this, you're doing this. How does being a follower of Christ shape your response to that complaint? Maybe you're a bystander. You've witnessed something else. You're not directly involved, but you're like, whoa, what's happening here? How does being a follower of Jesus shape my response to that? Is it to turn away? Is it to lean toward? What does it look like? What about those who are beneficiaries of injustice? 
that you've recognized, man, I'm benefiting from something here. Like, I didn't put it in place, but I'm, on, I'm benefiting here. How does being a follower of Jesus shape my response? And of course, those who are on the receiving end of injustice, the Hellenist widow who's not getting equal food distribution. How does being a follower of Jesus shape the response that we have? Because Jesus has answers for us. <laughs> he's not immune to this. He's not ignoring us. He's calling us into this and will equip us to respond in a way that honors him and glorifies him. An opportunity of being more just and merciful impacts our whole lives. Roger mentioned this language of a lifestyle of justice, that being uh, pursuing God's uh, compassion and mercy and justice doesn't look like volunteering once every so often at this particular cause. It's something that impacts the whole of our lives. The whole of our lives are becoming more and more reflective of God's justice and mercy. And one of the challenges that we have is uh, our sinful natures get in the way. And uh, I can imagine that early church, some believers going, you know what, we've appointed those seven guys to go and sort out that ministry. I don't need to now have a concern for the Hellenist widows, right? There's this outsourcing potential. And you might sit here and say, common goods are doing amazing things and our church is supporting them. And you're saying, I don't have to do anything because the church is doing this, that ministry is doing this, that's not up to me. But God was saying, actually, if this is part of your discipleship as a Christ follower, the whole of your life is to become more compassionate and just. And what we see in this text that the, seven, the appointment of the seven didn't outsource justice and mercy. Instead, it facilitated it. It allowed other people to participate and play their part, even as the church played its part. But why is it that Christians typically don't connect their faith to this area of discipleship? What are those barriers that we're experiencing? What are those things that come up in our hearts that when you hear a complaint and you go, yes, but... Because when we hear a complaint, we might feel overwhelmed. Polly used that language earlier. When we see a, a cause, an issue, when the next storm comes along, you almost don't want to turn on the news or scroll through the news feed because you know how many people are suffering with flooded houses, right? It's like, I'd rather just not turn it on. I'm feeling overwhelmed. What good can I do in that space? Sometimes it gets really political. And you're saying, depending on who's making the complaint, it's either valid or invalid, right? Or it's like, no, no, it's that person's job to do it. It's that person's job to do it. There's a blame game. It's like, I mustn't do anything because that person's not doing their job. And sometimes we, we can flip it on the other side and saying, I'm not going to help that person because they've made bad choices to get themselves into that space. And we kind of individualize it and saying, it's, it's your problem. Why should I help you in the problem you put up for yourself, right? Other times we may disqualify ourselves, thinking that there's only other people are qualified to serve in that particular area. Saying, I'm not, I'm not smart enough, I'm not gifted enough, I don't have what it takes, I, I'm just going to stay away from that particular cause or issue or community. And if we're honest, sometimes we don't want to grow in this area because we're worried of what God might call us to sacrifice in terms of our time, our comfort, and our money. Have I stood on everyone's toes yet? One more. <laughs> it gets messy, doesn't it? It really does get messy. And, and so it gets complex that when we hear a complaint and if something pops up and we're going, oh, I don't know what to do about it. And if we're honest, sometimes the loudest voice in helping us discern is on our Google algorithms, not the Word of God. How should I feel about this? Well, let's go see what other people's positions are. 
and we're scrolling through and seeing these headlines, these kind of things, and we're not going to God and on our knees saying, God, what will you call me to do in this situation? So as, I, as you reflect on your own journey, I want to ask you to think, what is your go-to barrier? What is your first yes but that you typically answer when you hear a complaint arising as it relates to compassion and mercy and justice? You might want to share that with somebody. If you're in a, a group, a community of other people where you hold each other accountable, that's a, a useful space to go like, I'm grappling with this. This is what I, I'm trying to overcome. Can you journey with me through this? Polly mentioned some resources that we have on our website. I just have a screen grab to, just to help you know where it is on our website. I, this is linked from your Bloberg uh, homepage. But uh, we believe that a biblical response to these issues is really important. Yes, we must engage and learn from other voices. But when we open up Scripture and when we go to God, we want to connect our faith to some of these big issues. And so as you can see, that, that tab there, uh, what I've circled, that doesn't look like it's come through very nicely. I'm sorry. Um, but you'll find all those different topics that when a complaint arises and you're going, how, how do I have some Christian worldview informing this, my response? How do I understand it and how do I discern before I act? And so I encourage you to go there. Um, and if you're, as I say, with a group of others, going through it every so often to look and saying, this thing's popped up in the news again. What can we do about it? There's things to watch, to listen, to read, devotionals, blogs, videos, a whole range of things that you can do, use to help you discern your next step. But the next reflective question that I'm going to ask you, uh, I like reflective questions because I believe each of you are on a journey. Each of us are on a journey of becoming more just and merciful. But the question is, how are you growing in this area of your discipleship, your followership of Jesus? How are you growing? Are you indeed growing more compassionate or less? Or you stagnated? You, you recall a time in your Christian faith where you're like, yes, I'm getting God's heart in this, and you've been a little bit bruised, a little bit beaten, and you, you, you've, you're finding yourself stuck. Are you listening out for complaints, or are you blocking your ears saying, I don't want to hear those Hellenist widows complain again about the food? Are you taking those barriers to God? Maybe there's repentance needed there, saying, God, I, I'm hiding behind this. I know I'm hiding behind it because I want, I want to keep my life the way it is. I don't want you to call me to do something that's going to cost me anything. And whether or not you are a champion for justice or you're in the early stages of connecting your faith, this is like new information. It's, it's, it's like I've never really considered that before. The question is, are you growing? Are you taking another step forward? That when you look back over the last period, you say, I've grown in this area of my faith. So I'm not saying here you need to be at this level of, of connecting your faith because we're at different stages. I'm not here to give you a checklist to say, if you're doing this and this and this and this and this, I'm going to give you 52 laws, and if you tick all of those, then you're just and merciful. Because Christian faith isn't like that, right? God takes us deeper and takes us deeper if we were aligned to do that. So, so far we've looked at being just and merciful and compassionate is part of what it means to be an individual Christ follower, and that it's, that it's a journey, right? It's not a static thing that you either are or not. You're growing in it. And that's talking about us as individuals. But I want to look at us at, as at uh, believers. I'm just speaking to Christ followers for a moment. What does it mean to be a collective, a church that is pursuing compassion and justice? Let's go back to Acts chapter 6. Because there's some things that can be done as a church, as a collective, that can't be done as individuals. 
So I'm going to read this text again because it was a while ago that I opened this. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. And again, I don't know how to pronounce these Greek uh, names, so uh, Cindy did a great job. Uh, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and if you struggle with uh, uh, dyslexia, it's not Parmesan, it's Parmenas. It's Nicolaus and a, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles and they prayed and landed, laid their hands on them. So what we see is that the response of the 12, the leaders of that church, was to recognize that they had a blind spot of, of equal distribution of food. And they set up a group of leaders to oversee this ministry. And we see in doing this that the church together, not the church made up of individual believers, but the church together has a huge impact. That the generosity of individuals, which was uh, orchestrated or administrated or coordinated by these leaders, it allowed a flow of blessing to the community. That before it was kind of like ad hoc, it's like we're putting things together at the the apostles' feet and then they're distributing it. But by putting a structure around, by putting uh, things together, we see the individual intersected with the collective. We saw individual generosity administered by the collective. And so it allowed that the people who were being generous to this cause may have had other responsibilities and couldn't serve tables, to use that language. But together, the church was able to facilitate the individual's responsibility, individual's generosity into collective blessing for the community beyond. And sometimes people use this particular text uh, to have an argument saying the church mustn't actually focus on justice and mercy because uh, they must focus on preaching and prayer. I don't know if you've heard that kind of thing saying, no, 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 in a church like this, we must focus on that. You know, Act 6 tells us the pastors must focus on this. But in so many ways, it actually is the opposite. The whole gathering recognized that they must be continuing to good, of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. The church, this passage actually elevates, saying the collective churches need to be arranging ministries for vulnerable members of the community and the congregation. Look, the, the people leading in this text helps us see that it doesn't need to be the lead pastor or the elders, but people of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. It elevates the need that the church can have a huge impact when working together. And the next part of the passage uh, in verse 7 and 8 points out that pursuing justice is missional. It's missional. It says in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And then there might be a a, a paragraph break in your Bible. So I'm just going to include verse 8 because it tells us that Stephen, one of those seven, was full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Interesting, eh? And we think often that the, the signs and wonders would accompany the preaching. But here, the signs and wonders are accompanying the service to the poor. We started at the beginning of Act 6 with the potential of racial and ethnic division in the church, possibly splitting it. And what we see here in God's beautiful wisdom by the work of His Spirit is that the church turned it into something that became an advertisement for the goodness of God. 
that their response to a problem, a complaint, actually led to something glorifying God and people being more curious about this, this community of people who did things a little bit differently. And the word spread, the gospel was sent out and the church grew. And I find it fascinating to come back to Stephen as one of the leaders in this ministry that he had great wonders and signs. And I would love to know what those wonders and signs were in overseeing or being part of the team that oversaw this particular ministry. Because as they served these, this vulnerable uh, part of their community, God was blessing what they were doing. There was an accompaniment of the power of God in that ministry. And sometimes we, we can get into a trap when we're saying, what happens here on Sunday is the holy stuff, right? It's the stuff where we meet with God and God moves and da-da-da. And the stuff that we do during the week is, is not that holy. It's kind of humdrum. We just got to push through and with enough coffee, we can get through the week, right? And, and, and that's what I love about this is it just points out that actually even in serving food to a vulnerable community, God's power was accompanying them. Signs and wonders, the church growing, the mission was happening. Whatever is fueled by God's heart will be empowered by him and sustained by him. That's something that we've got to remember. I'm going to come back to that in a couple of moments. And if we shoot forward, okay, what is the impact of this this church uh, back in uh, AD 40-ish, 56-ish? Go back uh, to 360 AD. Uh, Tim Keller tells us of uh, Emperor, Emperor Julian. I always think about Madagascar, the little lemur, is King Julian. I always have to pay attention. They're not saying it's, it's King Julian of Rome. But uh, he hated Christians, Emperor Julian, because it undermined his authority. And he was writing to a pagan priest at the time. And he was saying that these Christians are growing all over the Roman Empire. And he writes to a pagan priest, this Emperor Julian, saying, nothing has contributed to the progress or the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So here is likely the most powerful uh, leader of that part of the world at that time, recognizing that the charity of the church was winning people into the flock. Justice and mercy are missional. Now, I know the context has changed and times have changed, but what are people outside of the church saying about the church in Cape Town today, about our collective generosity or charity to strangers? Can you imagine the good for the city and for the church if churches across the, across the nation, really, were known as places where we were charitable, not only for people here, but for people outside of our faith, outside of our communities? Can you imagine the witness that we would have in a greed-obsessed world when we demonstrate something of our generosity to God's purposes. And so this brings me to my next point, that that Jesus is the source and the sustainer of justice and mercy. Because sometimes you get to a point in a message like this, and it feels like I've gone and put bricks in your backpack. And you're trying to, like, why did I come to church today? Because I've laid on a whole lot of heavies without giving you uh, the perspective that Jesus sustains what he calls us to do. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that it is the motivation and the ongoing source that we need to grow in our justice, our mercy, and our compassion. That showing justice to our neighbor is a result of the gospel because converted people live like the one they are saved by. Let me unpack that a bit. 
At the heart of the gospel, we know that believers are given the opposite of what they deserve. What we deserve is death and punishment, and what we are given is life, adoption, and reconciliation with God, and so many other things. And so when we reflect on how much we have been given without deserving it, it frees up our heart to be the kind of people who show grace to other people, even when we don't think they deserve it. Think about that for a moment. If everything that we have is a gift of God, that frees us up to be generous with what God has given us. Another perspective, I'm going to dive back into the Old Testament. God's trying to instruct his people that he's just redeemed out of slavery to be a new kind of people. He's trying to establish right relationships. And in Leviticus 19, it tells the people of God to love the alien or the foreigner as yourself and gives the explanation, because you yourself were once aliens or foreigners. So in some ways, God is saying, you were a foreigner in Egypt and I loved you, so you are to love the foreigners that are in your community because you were a foreigner. You know what that's like. And so that principle that we draw into our New Testament, our New Covenant understanding, because you have been set free by grace, wired into your freedom is the joy and the capacity to set others free where they are trapped in lack of freedom. That this is not an obligation, it's a joy and it's opportunity. That when we have been saved by grace, we can't hold on to feelings of superiority towards people saying, you don't deserve my help. You're not good enough to get my help because we've been on the receiving end of incredible grace. We think about the time, the money, and the skills that we have are a gift of God. It sure does feel like we've earned it, right? We keep trying to wrestle the gift out of God's hands and make it our own. But when we recognize that everything we have is because of God's grace towards us, the salvation by grace helps us see that in light of a loving God who blesses us even though we don't deserve it, it frees us from trying to cling onto them. I mentioned one of the barriers that, that we often have is saying, I don't want to pursue this because I don't trust God to supply what I need to accomplish what he calls me to do. But if God has started and it continues to lavishly give us all things that we need for his purposes. He's not going to give up on us when we pursue his purposes in pursuing compassion and justice and mercy. That we can trust him to supply our every need. I'm not saying it won't cost. What I'm saying is God's grace won't run out on you as you pursue his purposes. So, let's bring this together. Finally, right? Final stretch. A bit of a recap. God's people are to be moved by his compassion and concern for those who are vulnerable. We're to have a special consideration. We know in Scripture, God puts, he says he's on the side of the poor and the oppressed. He never says he's on the side of the rich. He's on the side of the poor because they're so likely to be taken advantage of. And so Christ followers are to be innocent of injustice. And they're to pursue relationships towards the healing and restoration of others who have been taken advantage of. And this takes place in our individual lives as part of who we are as individuals, but also together as a church, saying how can we have an impact in our city that in our togetherness we can accomplish something that we can't do as individuals. And deeply rooted in the gospel is the truth that what God is calling us to is empowered by him, sustained by him, and ensures the accompaniment of his spirit for signs and wonders as we pursue his purposes. Now, I know with a message like this, there's a few different potential takeaway points. I want to list a few before handing back to Roger, that depending on what hit home, uh, you might want to respond in a different way. There's there's a few here. 
if you're in that space where you've been blocking your ears to complaints, perhaps a response this morning is to say, God, what complaints do I need to hear? Who are the Hellenist widows in my life at the moment, in my city at the moment, that I need to be listening to their complaints? Another thing you may want to consider or go to God with is what are the barriers or the excuses, the, the, the yes buts that you typically go to and you go before God and say, God, help me with this. Let me put this underneath your gospel, not on top of it. You might need to respond and say, God, let your voice be louder than the politics or the social media that is guiding my view on these topics. You might be asking God, like through Stephen, to be full of grace and power, to do great wonders and signs among people. Maybe you are serving in some place that is reaching those who are vulnerable. saying, God, let us see signs and wonders in this place that honor you and cause the world to be curious about your power. More than anything, there's two things I think we, we can all take away, including myself, is asking God to give us his spirit and his wisdom as we pursue justice and to ask him to guide our next steps. That what is the very next thing that he calls us to be and to do and that his spirit would accompany us to accomplish that? Roger, would you like to pray or would you like me to pray? I'd like you to pray. Cool. But I'd like to share something. Maybe the band can join us. Um, the two catalysts in my life, which I realized many years ago, and I'm on the journey, not in the arrive space, um, was realizing that I was asking the question, how much can I get away with? So it was this terrifying, humbling, tear-jerking experience when I realized a lot of my life living in South Africa was, what, how much can I get away with and still look Christian? Until I felt like God almost say, how well can you love? And um, the two catalysts, and they both uh, actually documents on your website, was the one was um, a living wage versus a minimum wage, which goes to that question of how much can I get away with? How much can I draw from a person and how little can I give them? Versus in South Africa, how well can I dignify a person? And asking the question... And it actually meant for Nix and I, uh, in the early stages, we could only afford two days, not three, to have someone help clean our home. But it meant we freed someone up to be able to work another day and get a living wage. And there's an amazing um, you know, the, uh, article on the website around a living wage. How do I give someone a life they can actually live, not how do I justify my, my little pittance because the minimum wage says the law tells me I can and that, is, that was such a game changer because it becomes love, not what can I get away with. And the other one was eye contact. <laughs> the early stages of this journey of justice was, can I look my fellow human being in the eye? Can I love them by looking at them, not pretending they're not there? And greeting and engaging and asking the questions or simply just giving them the dignity of my eye contact. That was many years ago, but I, I just felt like those kick-started my journey because I thought, imagine God had said, how much can I get away with? Just, you know, look at the problem of Roger's life. What's, what's the minimum I can do to just get him off his feet? What a sad gospel. Instead, he gives his whole self in radical love to get a silly little guy like me back into the kingdom of God. And so I suppose the question would be not how, can, how much can we get away with, but God, how well have you loved me? And how well can I love and um, Rich, thank you for provoking us. And uh, we're, we're on a journey. And I look forward to working out how we do it as individuals in a lifestyle. 
and continuing how we do it together. Um, I wish I could uh, share more stories of the way that our Mercy Fund serves people in our community. Just these last few weeks, we have had, it, it, it's for the wonderful sake of, of privacy that we don't, but you are shareholders in radical redemption. If you're a, if you're a person who gives regularly, you're sharing in wonderful redemptive stories of helping people in some of their darkest times. And um, I want you to know that. It's not the only way, but I want you to know that there is so much redemption happening. So Richie, will you pray for us? And then maybe we can stand as Rich prays. And then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we pray that your profound, relentless love would fill our hearts for our neighbors, for our fellow countrymen. Lord, may this pursuit of justice and compassion and mercy be fueled by you, Lord. Not, not obligation, not guilt, not because it's what uh, we need to look like, but Lord God, because we want to honor you and glorify you. So Jesus, we ask that we would know that deep love that you have for our vulnerable brothers and sisters. We would know that deep love and we would know how to, re to respond to you and care for people, journey with people, bless people, be part of their redemptive story. Lord God, Lord God, that your kingdom may be extended in our time. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would minister to every person, every single one of us today, Lord that you would, in your beautiful way, highlight those areas of our hearts that we need to bring underneath you and bring before you. Lord, where is it that we need to repent and turn from sin, Lord? Where is it that we've missed the mark of hearing your heartbeat for the vulnerable? Lord Jesus, highlight where we are running from you and not to you. And Lord, where we are fearful, where we are scared of what you might call us to be and to do. Holy Father, may we rest in the comfort and the joy and the love of knowing, Lord Jesus, that you have not ever called us to do or be something that you have not already gone and done. That we follow you to the vulnerable and the hurting. We follow you there because we know you are already there. Lord Jesus, ignite within us the deepest passion that fuels us to be a people that love you and love you to the point of loving others who don't like us and that we are not like. We pray be honored. May this, may this congregation be on mission in such a way that their church is growing and becomes famous or more likely, Lord Jesus, you become famous because of the radical love, the radical compassion and the radical mercy that we're seeing in here. Again, not to build a brand, Lord Jesus, but that you are worthy of our every breathing moment. Help us to follow you in service and love and compassion to others. May you be glorified in us and through us as we serve you, Lord Jesus.